Well, hello, everybody. Um, I am preaching from the studio for the first part of our series. I preached um, this last week on Sunday. We had some issues with the recording, and we felt it was important to uh, make sure that we had this sermon recorded because I'm going to be referring back to it quite a bit as we go through the series because it lays down some of the foundations that are so, so important. So we are starting a series uh, uh, about Revelation and the end times, which uh, I'm really excited about. It's, a, it's an amazing book. But if you have your Bibles, then um, then please turn with me or your your uh, your apps to Revelation chapter one. We're going to read uh, the first eight verses from the ESV, and this is what it says: the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loved us, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he who is coming with the clouds and every age will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And we thank God for this incredible word. So, I don't know if you knew uh, this, uh, I'll give you a few bits of information that, uh, did you know that Finland doesn't exist and that the moon doesn't, isn't actually real and the earth is hollow? I don't know if you knew any of those things uh, and birds aren't alive. Um, this is probably really exciting new information for you. It was for me when I first heard about it in my studying of, of this book. Um, and the reason that I'm sharing it is all of those are actual um, conspiracy theories that are banded around in our world today, that Finland doesn't exist. This was uh, a message that was put out there a few years ago because uh, Japan and uh, the then Soviet Union were fighting over fishing rights. So if you go to where Finland is, then it's just a great expanse of water, which, of course, that's easily disproved because you can just go to where Finland is and stand in Finland and go, oh, you know, I'm on dry land. Birds are drones is the conspiracy theory. Uh, the moon doesn't exist. Not sure what the reason behind that would be. And then, of course, the Earth is hollow because there's an advanced civilization living in the Earth along with the dinosaurs. These are all conspiracy theories that people actually believe in. And even though it might sound really crazy, we live through conspiracy theories all the time. So, you know, we go through COVID and there was this theory about the vaccines were, were tracking mechanisms from the government, which I thought was quite amusing. This is my personal view, uh, because I think that ship has sailed a long time ago because we've all got phones. Uh, then there's conspiracy theories around 5G, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the cell phone networks, and then there's the deep government. Um, you know, there's a government within the government 
One thing I do know, though, even though so many of these conspiracy theories I think are, are amusing, um, is one thing I do know is regardless of what we think, what you see is not what you get when it comes to our world. Uh, there are things going on behind closed doors that we don't know about. There are things and uh, going on within all sorts of aspects of our life. We don't always get a full insight of the reality of what is happening. And this is where revelation comes in. Because what we really need to be able to do uh, is answer is, is saying what's really going on and how do we respond to what's going on in our world? What's really going on? Not just the conspiracy theories, but what is the reality of what's going on behind uh, what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis? And who should we listen to? Who should we believe? What value system should we follow? And this is what the book, in part, is what Revelation is all about. We're going to see it. This is what John actually tells us in the first verse, that Revelation is a prophetic uh, revealing uh, an, ap an apoplect <laughs> apocalyptic, I'm, I'm going to struggle with it, trust me, it's one of those words for me, apocalyptic letter that reveals Jesus and uncovers the reality of the now and the not yet. Now, this is a statement I put together after I um, started uh, researching for this series, that revelation is prophetic. It's, uh, it's a thus saith the Lord. This is what God is saying. It's uh, an apocalyptic letter alongside Ezekiel and Daniel, and we're going to look at what that means in a second. It's a letter because it was written to a group of churches at that time that were representative of all churches, and it's revealing Jesus. This book is filled with images of Jesus, seven in all, and they're incredible images, but this is my point at this part of my sermon, is that it's uncovering the reality of what is really going on now and what is going to happen in the future. I want you to remember that. It uncovers the reality of the now and the not yet, the what is to come. And I understand Revelation is a very, very uh, can be a very difficult book to understand. It's a strange book. It's full of all sorts of different imagery and symbols. So, for example, you know, I've got a little list here. Uh, in chapter one, it talks about there being one like the Son of Man, standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands, holding seven stars in his hands. Chapter four, you've got this image of a throne, a vision, surrounded by four living creatures full of eyes. In chapter five, a lamb as if dead in the middle of the throne with seven eyes and seven horns. These are strange images and symbols. Chapter 12, a woman clothed with the sun, giving birth to a child, a great red dragon seeking to kill the child. Chapter 13, a beast from the sea having 10 horns and seven heads, followed by a beast from the earth with two horns, like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. Chapter 17, another woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and 10 horns, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations. What is that all about? Chapter 21, the holy city is a bride coming down out of heaven and having the glory of God. How do we approach this? How do these images give us an insight, an uncovering of the reality of what is happening in our world today? What has it got to do with the average 21st century Western Christian who may be running around a, a young um, a young family. What has that got to do with uh, what's happening in Israel 
right now, what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia and these other world events that cause us so much concern. How does Revelation speak to these things? Well, just as a just as a starting point, there are certain principles that I think are easy uh, just to put out there as a framework of some understanding when it comes to revelation and the imagery around revelation. And so what I'm going to do in this first little while is I'm going to set a foundation as to how we should read revelation. In other words, how do we interpret revelation as general principles? And then I want to finish off uh, the last little bit highlighting this incredible image of Jesus Christ uh, that John gives us, this declaration of what Jesus is all about. So just some general principles here. First of all, as I've just said, Revelation is full of images and symbolisms, and they're not meant to be taken literally. What do I mean by that? Well, when it talks about a dragon or a beast or a woman riding a beast, we, can't, we, we shouldn't expect these to be literal um, things that are going to take place. I, we're not going to expect suddenly a dragon to appear or, or anything like that. So they are symbolic. They are images that are important, but they're not literal. Nature in Revelation has significant meaning. It represents uh, different events uh, that happen in our history in the past and to come. Uh, also, animals often represent people. And then, of course, uh, if you've done any kind of reading around Revelation, you'll know the numerology in Revelation is just so beautiful. For example, and this is just one example, the number seven, seven in Revelation, is symbolic of completion and uh, the whole together. And so there are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven lamps, seven churches, seven spirits, seven images of uh, visions of Jesus. Uh, this, this number seven is so powerful. And then you've got the number four and you've got the number 12. And uh, you've got all these different numbers that are ingrained within Revelation, all building up to this amazing book that, as I said, is so important for us to understand what is happening today through the lens of what Revelation's message is. So let's start by looking just at the first part, the, what John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is John saying this is the title of the book. Notice it doesn't say revelations. We often refer to the book of Revelation as revelations. It's one revelation um, of Jesus Christ. What does this word revelation mean? Well, it actually comes from the word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalyptic. And if you were to give a definition of that because of our pop culture and our movies, we'd often say uh, it's got something to do with the end of the world. Well, that's not actually what it means in its entirety. What this word actually means is it's an uncovering of truth. So you remember I said in my definition of what Revelation's about, it's a revealing of Jesus. It's an uncovering of Jesus, an uncovering of the reality of what we're experiencing in our moment in history. It's a, an uncovering and it's a powerful uncovering. So again, if I go back to that definition I said, it's a prophetic apocalyptic letter it reveals Jesus, which is what apocalyptic means, apocalypsis, and uncovers, apocalypsis, the reality of the now and the not yet. That's what Revelation is about. That's what John tells us Revelation is about. So here's the thing about Revelation. I remember I was a child of the 80s and I grew up uh, in the 80s. I was a teenager uh, in the late 80s and then into the 90s. Here's what I remember about Revelation. 
it scared the living daylights out of me. I was so afraid of this book, even as a young Christian. And that might be your experience now, that when you think about Revelation, you think it's confusing. Because how do you meditate and enjoy your moments with Jesus in the morning when you're meditating on a beast rising up and a dragon this and the locusts that? I mean, how, how, how do you even approach this book? It's confusing. And uh, for me, not only was it confusing, but it was also created a lot of fear because in the 80s and 90s, it was all about predicting the end of the world. And it was very, very common to look at Revelation as this big predictor tool that Jesus was coming back next Tuesday and he's mad. That's what I thought about. The number of the beasts, 666. There was the Left Behind series. Freaked me out, you know, like there, there was going to be a day coming when when all the Christians were going to be taken up in the rapture and what happens if I'm left behind? And, you know, I'd freak out if I came in the back door and saw a pair of shoes that were empty in the kitchen. Has my family been taken? I've been left behind. Now, all that sounds quite ridiculous to many of you listening, but that was the reality of how people were interpreting Revelation. And it was, it was a scary, scary time. So this kind of hang-up is left over in, my, in many people's thinking when it comes to Revelation, and yet John makes it really clear in these opening verses what Revelation is actually for. And, um, and so we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time on this because it's so important that we look at Revelation through the correct lens, if you like. First and foremost, here's what John says. I've highlighted the words. The book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave. It's a gift. I want you to remember that. It's a gift to us to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all. And here's, here's what you need to remember as you're looking at the book. I cannot overstress this enough. We have to remember that this book was written for a specific purpose to a specific people. What is it? It's to be blessed. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written for the time is near. So this book was given by God as a gift to be a blessing, a blessing. Now, why am I emphasizing that? It was not given to John or to us in order for it to be fear-mongering, full of speculation, confusing, and used as a weapon to argue with one another over, which unfortunately has been the history of this book. It was given to them to uh, be read aloud. So the church would gather, the people would stand and listen to the whole of the book written, uh, read from the front. And it was to be heard and it was to be kept. It's full of instruction. It's full of reminders. It's full of hope. It's full of courage. It's an encouragement to the church at that moment. That's what this book is all about. John says it right there. So let's not make this book be something that it was never meant to be. So whenever we read this book, we need to read it through the eyes of the original hearers. This is a, a foundational principle when it comes to interpreting the Bible. You must, it is so paramount that when we read the Bible, we can only comprehend what God is saying to us by first understanding what God was saying to his original hearers. 
what do I mean, mean by that? We have a tendency because in our cultural moment, in our historical moment, we approach the Bible in a, in what really, and sometimes is a very selfish point of view. This Bible is all about me, myself, and mine. This is what this book is about. It's the message of Jesus Christ to me. And if we're not careful, we forget that the book is, is compiled and given to a certain group of people in ancient Israel in their moment first. So when reading it, we can only fully understand what this book means to us by fully understanding what it meant to them. Another way, and I, I heard that this week, and I thought this was helpful, it was written for them. Sorry, I should say written to them for us. It's the wrong way around. Written to them for our benefit. So we can join in with this message, but we can't forget that it was for that first century Christian. Stood listening to this message, read out aloud from the front, gaining encouragement, gaining blessing. This is not meant to be a complicated book. This is a book that was meant to be a blessing. This book was not to fill people with fear. This is a practical book full of hope. It was a reminder of who it is uh, that we serve, Jesus Christ, a reminder of what is to come, a reminder of the reality of what is going on right now, what's really going on. Behind the covers, what is really going on? So who were these group of people? Imagine, if you will, going to dinner with some of your Christian friends. And you, they come in and you're sat in a restaurant, maybe, and, and you, you ask, let's say the, the husband of the couple that you're sitting down to have dinner with is, is not with his wife. Well, where is he? Where, where, where is he? Well, he got taken. By whom? by the Romans, he's in prison, probably being tortured at that moment for his faith in Jesus Christ. That was the reality of that first century Christian church, horribly persecuted. You would know Christians by their uh, missing limbs. You would know Christians by the scars of torture, that people were being dragged away. There was a whole period at this time where Christians were being dipped in oil and set light to as human candles. That was Nero. This was a horrible, horrible time. Christians being cut out of society. Things were getting worse and worse. Your ch the church leadership at that time, there was some mass murdering and martyring going on. It's very easy for us to separate ourselves from the reality of what was happening at that time because when we say we're being persecuted, it's really not persecution when somebody doesn't like you very much at work. It's not the church. The church wasn't being persecuted through COVID. Persecution is when your friends and family are being dragged away and murdered on account of their belief that they were being ostracized from society, that you were now unable to get a job and make an income because of your belief in Jesus Christ. That's persecution. That's what this church was going through en masse. Imagine, if you will, your church leadership, myself or Phil or any of the other pastors, suddenly being taken out into the streets and murdered because of our leadership. In this period between A.D. 44 and A.D. 68, just before uh, John is given these visions, Peter was crucified upside down, Paul was beheaded, James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by sword in Jerusalem, Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. These were the leaders of the church. Thomas was speared to death, Philip crucified upside down or beheaded, Matthew 
uh, was stoned and, and burned. Bartholomew was beheaded. James, um, the brother of Jesus, was clubbed to death in Jerusalem. Some accounts say he was thrown off the temple. Simon the Zealot was sawn in half. Jude, Thaddeus, was axed to death. Incident after incident of persecution. And in the middle of this, God gives this incredible letter as hope, as blessing, as a reminder to the church for our benefit. It is so, so important for us to remember that. To not get camp out on thinking it's all about me and our moment in history. It truly is not. And it's on those people's shoulders that we must stand. It's next to them that we must stand and peer into this book and say, what is this book saying to them? What is this book saying to us? Now, Revelation is also full of controversy. There are, generally speaking, four approaches to the way that you can interpret Revelation. Why am I speaking about this? This seems quite technical. Why don't we just get straight into the theme, which is so beautiful, of, of uh, Revelation? Well, it's important for us to understand the different approaches because the different approaches will determine how you may hear or read the book of Revelation. Please, again, remember, this book was meant to be writ read out to a group of illiterate people and they would be encouraged by it. A lot of the symbols and the imagery that were used uh, in Revelation, that the people then would understand because the Roman Empire used a lot of imagery. And so there was a lot of resonance. They would understand, they would get it. And, um, and so this is what this book is all about. It's this simple book, but we make it complicated. We make it complicated in a number of different ways. So what are these four different approaches. Oh, this is, this is a great quote. I put this in last minute. This is from William Hendrickson. I will uh, refer to him a couple of times. This book, More Than Conquerors, is a, an interpretation of Revelation, was written in early in the uh, last century. This book, Revelation, is a fully up-to-date, uh, is as fully up-to-date today as it was in AD 1000. 50 or 100 years from now, 100 years, that's now, it will, that's according from when this book was written. It will still be up to date. It's as applicable to the conditions in the churches of Europe, America, Asia, and every continent. Why have I said that? Because we can't just make the Bible about us and our moment in history. It spans all the dispensation. This book spans all the different ages because really it's the same history repeating itself in so many different ways. So what are the four different approaches? Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. There's the, the preterist interpretation. This idea is that events described were fulfilled in the first few centuries of the Christian church. Um, this is a, an interesting uh, response to Revelation because the idea basically is everything that it talks about in Revelation was all fulfilled within the first few hundred years after the church was birthed. This is a, uh, a helpful interpretation in the sense of that it recognizes the historical context and the importance of context. It's unhelpful because it ignores the message of judgment and wrath and Jesus Christ and what is to come for us all. So helpful, unhelpful. 
Then there's the, uh, the historicist interpretation. And this idea is that you would look at Revelation through the lens of there being specific moments in history that Revelation points to. So, for example, the, uh, the symbolism and the imagery uh, are representative of real historical events and people. I lived through this in the 80s and 90s, you know, that the Antichrist, the Antichrist was Pope. The Antichrist was Gorbachev. Soviet Union was uh, one of the beasts, you know, because Gorbachev had a birthmark on his head. So this was the number of the beasts. That was what was being uh, put about. Then you've got Napoleon, you've got Hitler, you've got Mussolini. You know, even in more recent history, you've got Oprah. It, all these specific historical people and events that they're saying are mentioned in Revelation. And you kind of got to scratch your head and go, Really? How would that be a blessing to the first century church? That in 2,000 years' time, the locusts are specific drones. Again, it's us looking at it through the lens of our historical Western moment and saying it must mean this. That's one of the problems with this viewpoint. Now, it's important to understand, I am not saying that, that Revelation does not point to specific historical events. But if this is the only lens that you look at Revelation through, then it is problematic. Um, the good thing is, is it does recognize that, uh, that there are specific things going on in our world that we need to take note of that the Bible speaks to. Again, William Hendrickson said this, For what possible good would the suffering and severely persecuted Christians of John's day have derived from specific and detailed predictions concerning European conditions that would prevail some 2,000 years later? So if Revelation is all about our moment in time, how does that help the persecuted Christians in the first century Israel. So we need to be careful with just camping out on that interpretation. Then you've got the futurist interpretation, that the events in Revelation have yet to occur. So some people who have this interpretation will look at Revelation through a chronological lens and say this is going to happen in order. As you read it, these events are going to happen, that the imageries and the, the beasts and the different uh, visions are all going to happen in order at some point in the future. Unfortunately, one of the downsides of this interpretation is, again, just like I've read from William Hendrickson, it's irrelevant to the first century Christian. Remember what I said? It's written to them for their blessing, for their hope. It's not just about us and our moment and our time. So is it relevant to say that it's only the future? Is it relevant to the first century Christian? This also results in a lot of speculation. A lot of fear-mongering. We have to be careful. Finally, you've got the idealist or symbolic interpretation. And uh, so, you know, all that you read is this symbol, symbol. It's not referring to events necessarily or history. It's all symbolic and representative of good, fighting against evil, the spiritual realities in our physical world. Again, there is absolutely... I, I would agree with that. There's a lot of symbolism and imagery and idealism when it comes to the, uh, the events in Revelation that are talking about the conflict between good and evil. But it also, though, the problem with this is that it downplays the historical realities, the uncovering that Revelation brings. So here's what I want to say very briefly. In Christianity, we need to be careful when it comes to our doctrine. We need to be careful 
the way that we approach Christianity. We can end up in conflict and it'd be discouraging arguing over things of second or third importance. Um, that there can be division in the church, friends falling out, families falling out. You know, that they're not like us. I don't want anything to do with that Christian church. I want Now, trust me, there are some significant doctrines that are of first importance when it comes to what we as a church believe, what our church family believes. We are very, very orthodox in our theology. Uh, we believe in things that are of first importance. So what does that mean? That's the, the you know, the virgin birth, the, the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture. We believe in these tenets of our faith. The apostolic creed is our, is our, is our foundation. And so we, we, we think of those and we think of them as being extremely important. And if we don't agree on those, then we're probably not brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't agree with some of those first order of importance doctrines, then we would say, you know, we, we are not of the same faith. This is why it's easy for us to be able to look at Mormonism or JWs and say, that's not just a different team, that's a different sport. You, you know, we, are, we, are, we would not be able to worship together the same God. Now, there's other things of secondary importance, things like the way some churches approach baptism or the way they approach um, leadership and eldership. And these are things that we can disagree on, but we can still worship together. We can still love one another. And then there's, there's, there's uh, thoughts and beliefs of third importance. And this is where revelation lands. Interpretation around some of the symbolism and visions are not things that we should be falling over. No one should be saying, well, I'm not going back to that church because they don't believe in, the, in the, uh, the futurist interpretation. That we can't be Christian brothers and sisters because we disagree on some of this. You know, we can... My aim at the end of this sermon series is not to land on which one of these do we believe. My aim is to align myself with what John is saying in Revelation, which is lift up a glorious ultimate Jesus to give us some insight into the present realities of our world today and then ultimately declare the gospel because that is what this book, as every other book in the Bible is about, is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's my aim. That's the success, not to land on one of these. What do I believe? Yes. What do I mean by that? Yes. I think there is good in all of these. I think there is uh, challenges with all of these. This is why I think the, the idea that the, some of the events refer to what happened in the first few centuries of, of the Christian church. Yes, absolutely, 100%, because Revelation refers to all the dispensation. I believe that there's a historical interpretation for some of the things that are happening in Revelation, 100%. I just don't believe that you can get into the nitty-gritty of, of looking at the fingernails on the locust and saying it represents this. I also believe that there is 100% a future aspect to the interpretation of Revelation that is predicting in some way or give, pointing to the return of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself said, be ready. The Bible is not explicit as to when that is going to happen. So whenever you hear somebody saying, oh, Jesus is coming back in 2025 or 26, then you can dismiss that 
because Jesus himself says only the Father knows. So we need to be careful with just saying it's about future interpretation. And we need to be careful about ignoring these and only camping out on symbolism. So, yes, yes, in some way they all have positive and negatives, but our aim is not to land on an interpretation, it's to keep it simple. And it is also to bring hope, to bring hope. Again, from the same book, William Hendrickson said this, in the main, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort, bring hope, encouragement, the militant church in its struggle against the forces of evil. It is full of help and comfort, not speculation, confusion, or fear for persecuted, suffering Christians. He, Jesus, is coming again to take his people to himself. There's the hope. The theme is the victory of Christ and of his church over the dragon, Satan, and his helpers. There's good and evil coming together. And can I tell you, there's no fight in it. There's no fight. There's not this equal two entities coming to together and duking it out because Jesus wins. He is the ultimate one. He is the one. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one that will be the ultimate ruler. He is the ruler of kings on this place today as he was 2,000 years ago. This whole book is as relevant to us today as it was to the first century Christians. We can lean into the message of the blessing and the glory and the ultimate Jesus Christ. We can lift him up. Why? Because we are also going through times where we need that hope and comfort and encouragement. We are going through difficult times. It may not be the same persecution, but you and I need to know and remember whose side we're on, that Jesus Christ wins. He won on the cross. He won when he raised from the death. He is winning now at the right hand of his father. He wins hearts. He wins minds. He wins cities. He wins. That's the message that we want to focus on. And notice John himself says, the first order of importance. He says who is and was and who is to come. It's really interesting. Don't skip over this. You would imagine with a phrase like that referring to Jesus that it should be who was, who is, and who is to come. But John is starting to introduce this idea that Jesus is now. That's that Jesus is as live and well and active, living in victory through his glorious church today as he will be in the future and he's, as he was. We need to remember who Jesus was, what he did in the past, but we need to remember the relevancy of it today. It's not just about the future. It's not just about history. It's about you and I living out our lives in the present reality of what is going on in our culture who is to come, Jesus in Revelation 22 says, I am coming soon. And again, for the time is near, I am coming soon. He is returning. And Revelation gives us insight as to some of the signs as to when that is going to happen. Why is that hopeful? Because notice it's all present tense. It doesn't say that Jesus is uh, sound his throne, waiting for the nod, like waiting, sitting on the bench, waiting to get into a game. He's on his way. Jesus is coming, actively present tense. It's not in process. He's not waiting. He's on his way. And you will see in Revelation, he is already here. So he is yes and yet to come. 
In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is at hand because wherever the king is, the kingdom is. See, Jesus is close by. He's near. He's close. He's coming. He's already here. He is. He was. He is to come. And so the reality is, as Jesus said, get ready, wake up, because it is imminent. The end is always near because Jesus is always near. And so what is our response to that? I, Jesus, in Revelation 22, verse 16, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am, a, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The amazing thing about the bright morning star is that that star is at its brightest when it's at its most dark. And the world feels dark right now, doesn't it? Maybe for some of you, life just feels dark. Jesus is here. He's in it. He's in the midst of it. He is shining. He is coming. It's the now and the not yet. And there's tremendous hope in that. Tremendous hope that the king is on his way. And, and in a very real sense, he's already here in the full reality of who he is. That's a message of encouragement. That's not fear mongering or speculation. That's just truth. And then John also says, if you look, this is an incredible verse. It says, I turn to see. This is actually, uh, this is not Revelation 22. This is chapter 1. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst, he's not on the outside looking into our lives. He's in the midst of the church. He's in the midst. We're going to talk about more about this next week. He's in the middle. He's acutely aware, all-knowing, all-powerful. And he is on his way and revelation encourages on that who is it that's coming jesus christ who loves us freed us from our sins made us a kingdom to him be glory and dominion forever and ever let us never remember who it is who is on his way let us never forget i should say let us never forget who is already here the ruler of the kings on earth be assured, my friend, no matter what is happening right now in our world, no matter what president is sitting on whatever seat or whatever throne, Jesus is ultimate. All glory and dominion are his. King of kings, Lord of lords, at his name, every knee will bow. And so even in the middle of all this persecution that might be felt, the hope that these first century Christians had is that Jesus is king that they could be, like Paul say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There was tremendous hope and courage. You can do this. There will be victory. So the very first revealing, the first truth that John wants to communicate to us and to them is what Jesus has done for us. Look at this, and I'm going to finish with this, that first of all, Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. To him who loves us, that today, my friend, you are loved. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He's not waiting for us to clean ourselves up in order to uh, be worthy of his love. He loves you. He loves me. And John wants to draw our attention that Jesus Christ, who's this faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, he loves you. You are loved, present tense. Jesus loves his people. And for some of you, the prayer should be, God, give me a fresh revelation of how loved I am because we forget it so easily. And as we'll see, 
We move away from our first love. It's one of the, one of the things Jesus says to the church is you've forgotten your first love, but you are loved. And Jesus' love for his people led him to lay down his life. And then secondly, Jesus frees us, John tells us, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ has freed us from our sins in the future, the penalty of our sins, that every one of us deserves to die as a result of the sin that is in our life that we willingly commit, that God is a just God. And so Jesus' death cancels out our obligation to pay that penalty. And then by doing so, he has victory over sin and death. And so not only is our, the penalty of sin paid for, but the enslavery of sin is paid for by his blood. John wants us to know that you are loved. He wants us to know that you are freed because death is separation from God. So our penalty should be death, which is separation from God. And what, God, what Jesus did is he experienced the separation instead of us. He took on the sin Bible says it was a curse and Jesus died that death so that people could be reconciled to God and live. That to all who believe in him is the gift of eternal life. That if we declare him as Lord and confess him with our mouth, then he will forgive us of our sin. And that today is the day of salvation. That if we surrender our lives and we ask for that forgiveness, that Jesus Christ in all his love will flood into our lives and change us forever. That's the promise. That's what John wanted us to know right at the beginning, who it is, what is this message? The message is, is that Jesus loves us, he frees us, and then thirdly, he makes us. He made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. See, priests, I could go into a lot of detail here, but priests continually worship. We are new citizens in this new kingdom with a new king. So the reality is that there is a kingdom going on around us. There is a, there's a citizenship in the world. People are following a king. Or you can follow the king with a new citizenship, with a new life, with a new spirit, with a new heart. Is he king over every aspect of our, of our lives? Is he truly are we worshiping him as king, as priests? Because that's what priests do. They worship. They also point others to Jesus. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about this, that you only get persecuted if you are declaring the reality of the king that you are following. If, you, if you're not getting persecuted for your belief in Jesus, then you have to ask yourself the question, how obvious is your belief in Jesus? See, these people in first century Israel... We're getting persecuted because of their belief in Jesus. They were telling people about Jesus. It was obvious that they were sharing the love of Jesus because Jesus says, be ready, be watchful. We have a responsibility in these end times to tell people about Jesus. So to finish, as a reminder, what is Revelation about? Revelation is a letter, a prophetic letter, an apocalypsis, an uncovering of what is really going on. It is historical. It is futurist. It is a blessing and, and it is uh, symbolic. It has thick symbolism in it. It has wonderful vision in it. We're going to dig into. But the ultimate aim is not so we can land on some fancy interpretation. 
The ultimate aim is to lift Jesus Christ up, for us to bow before him as king of kings, and for us to look for the day when he will return in all his glory. And as we journey through this book and as we look at the different things that are happening in our world today, I'm truly believing it's going to be the blessing that the first century Christians experienced can also be a blessing for us as well. And so my hope is, is that you will join us over the next few weeks. Uh, come downtown, 33, uh, Lake Country, wherever it might be, and dig in, get a journal, make some notes, really chew on this. It's a magnificent book. I'm very excited to share it with you. But for now, I just want to pray that as you maybe chew on some of the truth that has been communicated to you this, this morning, that, uh, that, that it truly will be that blessing. You know, it's the only book in the Bible where there's a promised blessing as a result of reading it out loud. Maybe read it out loud. Read it out loud every day. Enjoy the blessing that it was more. Be filled with hope. Be filled with encouragement. Because that is the gift that God gave us through this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you, praise you, Lord, for this amazing book. We ask in Jesus' name that you would open it up to us. Lord, that you would guard our hearts from, uh, from being so camped out on a particular interpretation that uh, we're unwilling to receive other things from you, Lord. I pray that we would come to you with open hands to receive, open hearts to receive, open minds to receive, and that, Lord, ultimately, that the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord, will be lifted up. Thank you for your promise that as we lift you up, you will draw men, women, children to yourself. That is our prayer, Lord. Forgive us, Father, for, for uh, maybe avoiding this book in the past through fear or speculation or whatever it might be. But, God, I pray that as we read these pages, that, Lord, more than anything, that you will be glorified and given the praise and the glory that you truly deserve. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you this weekend.